Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leanne, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Rishi Sunak, chosen to be new Ukraine prime minister. He has been chosen as the prime minister less than a week after Liz Truss stepped down from the position after she was there just six weeks in office. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq, Nick Davies. As always, Nick, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Boris Johnson dropped his bid to return as prime minister. He pulled out of the race to succeed to succeed Liz Truss, the former prime minister, and this eased the past for Sunak. Nick, give us some insight into the 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 dynamics here. What was going on when I saw that uh, Bojo was on his way back? I said, "Now this this can't be." And then shortly thereafter. He, he drops out. What, what was going on here behind the scenes, Nick Davies? Well, I think, you know, Boris Johnson is really a sort of Trumpian character. And I, I mean, <laughs> for him to come back after resigning uh, as a result of a series of scandals, just what, what was it, six weeks ago? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for him to think he could come back, I mean, that 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 would have been truly a, a sort of Trump Trump level outrageous move, and I suppose when it really came down to it, um, he or his his colleagues in the Tory party just just decided that was a bridge too far. I mean, um, the 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 Conservative Party, as it's officially called. Uh, you know, has been something like 30 points down to the Labour Party in opinion polls. And um, the, the I, I mean, the, 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 none of these people have actually been elected to govern the country. I mean, Boris Johnson won an election, but these other people, they're simply, they're, it's simply because of the, and under the British parliamentary system, whoever is the leader of the party with the most seats in Parliament is automatically the Prime Minister. Um, they, through some kind of reform a couple of years ago, they basically have made it that you know that you can't just keep having general elections one after another there is a sort of minimum time frame for a government and um so so it has just been up to the conservative party to fight among themselves uh for who is to be prime minister this is a completely undemocratic process uh even the, in in the election of trust 6 weeks ago uh, the people allowed to vote were about a hundred thousand Conservative Party members. So this is it's it's a bit 
like the equivalent of a democratic or republican party convention where essentially you just have the sort of party bigwigs uh um crowning somebody as their leader um in this case because the country was in such crisis that they just didn't even want to take the time to do that it was simply the conservative members of parliament who who had supported Sunak the last time around too, who simply uh, you know rallied behind him and and pushed him into the into Ten Downing Street. Let me ask you this, Nick, because it seems to me, I mean, let's say we're you you and Wilmer and I are on the Titanic and it hits an iceberg, and we change the captain. It's still going to the bottom of the uh, you know, and that captain's Liz Truss. We're like, oh, this is terrible. Liz Truss is the captain, and hey, Rishi Sunak, let's go with him. We're still Let's make the you the captain. Yeah, but might as well. <laughs> we still hit iceberg. We're still heading to the bottom of the Atlantic. It seems to me that they're just trading people in the seats unless they stop the foundational issue, which is the war in Ukraine and the subsequent economic war. Eh, eh, soon I give them 44 days, Larry the cat, whoever. They're in a world of hurt and nobody's fixing it. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, as as with the U.S., it's not, <laughs> it's not like the war in Ukraine is the only problem. Uh, so, so uh, you know, really, the the country was, you know, in pretty dire economic conditions beforehand. The the astonishing it's a bit if if you want to compare the the conservatives to the Republican Party here. Um, Liz Truss was was sort of the and, and Boris Johnson were both from the sort of Trump wing of the of the party, if you like. And Rishi Sunak is more like, even though yes, he's the first uh, um, first non-white uh, prime minister and also the youngest ever, I believe. Um, he also may be one of the richest because he's practically a billionaire, mm-hmm. thanks to uh, because his his wife is the daughter of an Indian billionaire who he met doing an MBA at Stanford. Um, he is he himself comes from somewhat more humble origins, but then he, after getting his MBA, went to work for Goldman Sachs and a couple of hedge funds. So. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much of that money is his wife's and how much is his, but, um, you know, this is, this is in other, other respects, other than, you know, his, his, um, you know, his, his Indian family origins, uh, this is the equivalent of the Republican Party nominating Mitt Romney or somebody like that, uh, you know, because he he is he represents more the the, the sort of traditional, not the extreme uh, um, wing of the party that that Truss represented. Um, whether he can restore some kind of stability, I, I mean, he too, in the in the in the rhetoric of the day, is all for tax cuts for the wealthy and tax cuts for the for the corporations. The the, the difference between him and Truss in in the previous leadership competition was that he was saying. You know, we yes, I I believe in all that too. But you know, we 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 can't do that just now. We need to actually get uh, the economy in stronger shape 
before we hand out the big tax cuts. And, and you know, so that's that's the moderate position here. Now, meanwhile, I mean, the astonishing thing is that in in 2022, after you, you know, what is this? 30, 40 years after Thatcher and Reagan, uh, Liz Truss had the um, the members of the Conservative Party just just baying for tax cuts, baying for 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 trickle down economics that were the you know to make themselves richer, and 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 you had the media in Britain, you know the BBC and and across the board sort of treating this as a serious um, serious proposal to stimulate the economy. You know, after the whole world, and certainly the UK and the US, have watched that not work for 30 or 40 years now, to the point where even even, even Joe Biden <laughs> condemned Truss's, Truss's uh, economic policies, you know. So, so what does this mean practically, Nick? To your point, he's he's they say he's worth about 830 million he's richer than the queen he's richer than the um, no. Uh, no 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 <laughs> no, no 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 that's, the land in the country hang on a second <laughs> hang on a second this is this is what this is what the article says it says that he's est- his estimated fortune is about 830 million according right. to the sunday times rich list and okay, and right. the, and that the queen was estimated in terms of her personal wealth to be four hundred and twenty million. Well, okay, I mean, but if you're the if you're the queen or the king, um, you know. No, no, that's why I said personal. Right. That's right. why I said personal well, wealth, not not the not the. I, I understand. He's not as rich as the royal family. No, I got that. But they were just comparing his wealth to her personal wealth. And but but that's not the point. But my point is from, from a from a practical from a practical politics perspective, to Garland's point, the economy like the Titanic is heading to the bottom of the ocean. What does this mean? Does he turn the Titanic into a submarine? What what does this mean? for the practical politics over the next 60 days for for the UK. Yeah, I think I think economically, I mean they're in the same position we are. 10% inflation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh poor, you know, there's already millions of people in Britain who who are, you know, behind on their electric electric bills and and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I you know, politically, I mean, what trust, I mean trust has just been a gift to the Labour Party. I mean, Johnson was already a gift, but, um, you know, basically with a 30-point lead, you know, the Labour Party now, um, I I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine what Sunak could possibly do unless he, he actually sort of governs as some kind of leftist and and sort of, you know, just... Uh, <laughs> how he could actually win back these people. Because this is, you know, as in as in the U.S., you had this, this phenomenon of the sort of white working class um, embracing the right-wing 
party because they're so disgusted and so disappointed Mm -hmm. and so betrayed Mm -hmm. by the quote-unquote center-left party, which is the Labour Party, Um, which, because... All these center-left parties, whether they're the Democrats or, you know, Tony Blair's New Labour or the, the, the now completely defunct socialists in, in France, you know, they, they have completely, they completely embraced neoliberal politics and economics. They, they became a second party of big business and the rich and, um, and, and, uh, the working people of Britain, like the working people, or many of the working people here, were just so angry with them that they they turned to the conservatives. Okay, and and um, you know, and then <laughs> then uh, after the Labour Party nominated Jeremy Corbyn as its leader, and he became very popular, mm-hmm. you know, like Bernie Sanders here, really, somebody who actually running on on, on real progressive issues, progressive economic issues, um, you know, basically threatening to stop the giveaway to the rich and the big corporations. They did to Corbyn uh, what they did to Bernie. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and they we also got, we, got, which, we got twenty seconds. Okay. And they also smeared Corbyn as an anti-Semite, mm-hmm. which was you know no, which would be you know grist for the mill here right. in America, where right. they do that all the time. In Britain, that was pretty shocking, and and to a great extent, it worked. So now they have Keir Starmer who is an empty suit. <laughs> we got to get out. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Russian defense minister calls counterparts to warn of coming false flag. Russian defense minister Sergei Shoigu spoke with U.S., U.K., French, and Turkish officials cautioning Kiev was preparing a dirty bomb attack. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. So the story here is that Shoigu held a flurry of calls with other military chiefs to forewarn a nuclear false flag would soon happen in Ukraine. The call between Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and Defense Minister Lloyd Austin, um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, was the second in three days. Now, Mark, the Washington Post reports 
Western powers warn Russia could use dirty bomb claim to escalate war. Officials in Kiev and several Western countries rejected claims made without evidence by the Kremlin that Ukraine is planning to use a dirty bomb, an explosive weapon designed to scatter radioactive material on its own territory, characterizing them as an attempt by Russia to create a pretext for escalating the conflict. Final point, Mark. The Department of State issued a joint statement on Ukraine. Earlier today, the defense ministers of each of these countries spoke to Shoigu at his request. Their countries, the U.K., Turkey, France, Germany, and the U.S., made clear they all reject Russia's transparently false allegations that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb on its own territory. Mark Schloboda, can you please provide some clarity to this madness? Yeah, um, so um, I think I, I first brought this up about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure I, I, I talked about it on Sputnik. I'm pretty sure on this show. Yes, you did. I also did a piece, a video, and my Substack article on exactly this. I think this is a pretext to um, escalate the war, but it's not coming from Russia. Uh, we have seen a lot of narrative uh, framework building and um, signaling, dog whistle signaling uh, to the Kiev regime uh, in recent days that of what exactly would be required to trigger a Western direct military intervention into Ukraine. Um, And that was specifically the use of a weapons of mass destruction. And the, 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 the phrasing constantly used was uh, um, tactical nuclear weapon and the like. Um, And uh, this, you know, some type of low yield Mm -hmm. uh, nuclear device. This has dominated Western headlines, despite the Russian president saying nothing of the sort. Um, And this um, has been distorted. and, And there is obviously a coordinated uh, I believe it's more than just a disinformation campaign campaign. I think it's laying the narrative framework. We saw this type of red line dog whistling in Syria where the U.S. said um, uh, in a, a, a blatant message to the jihadist forces they were supporting there. Uh, if uh, Assad uses a chemical weapon, that's the one thing that would trigger us to to be able to attack the regime. Oh, and lo and behold, uh, we had the white helmets and a whole bunch of uh, uh, blatantly manufactured and and well-debunked, quote-unquote, chemical weapons attacks. Um, And and we did see at least a a minimum airstrikes on Damascus uh, as a result of that. I think that this is what we're seeing again. I think the U.S. uh, with Russia calling up its reserves – um, and initiating this uh, campaign uh, to uh, cripple the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure in order to inhibit their military logistics, uh, transport by train. Um, they see the writing is on the wall and, and they're preparing for the next escalation cycle. Um, and the only thing they really have left in the bag, because they've made clear, Western media has made clear that they do not have enough 
um, supplies. They don't have enough artillery shells. They don't have enough artillery pieces. Uh, the, the ascending main battle tanks they've concluded would be useless um, because of the, the training time required and, and, and so forth. The only thing they have left is a direct intervention. Um, and we're seeing a lot of signs from this. We've heard from the Polish foreign minister that uh, use of a nuclear weapon by Russia would trigger a uh, allied response. We've heard from Joseph Borrell, the EU's uh, foreign policy high muckety muck, uh, that this, this would lead uh, us to annihilate the Russian military. Um, which is a pretty big smack talk from the, the EU foreign policy muckety-muck of an EU that doesn't have a military whatsoever, uh, not under its unified command anyway. Um, and uh, we have also heard uh, from Petraeus, uh, the uh, U.S. former director of the CIA and story general doing the talk circuit in recent days, saying exactly what type of escalation could trigger a U.S. intervention. We have also seen the U.S deploy the 101st Airborne Division to Romania. And they talked that they are not there on a peacetime mission. They were very specific. We are there on a combat mission. And they talked uh, about exactly uh, what could lead to their participation in the conflict. They talked about an attack on NATO, of course, that is something that is not going to happen. But they also mentioned an unspecified escalation by Russia that would be a trigger for them to be able to attack Russian forces in Ukraine. And then even more specifically, we heard um, in the um, CBS uh, report on this, um, we heard statements very specific uh, Russia's goal is to cut off all Ukrainian access to the sea, leaving the country and its military forces landlocked. And they did not provide a source for this assertion. I think what we're going to see is a dirty bomb, a loose tack nuke, something bl being blown off and used as a pretext for uh, perhaps pr not probably not all of NATO, but perhaps the U.S., Poland and some other coalition of the willing nonsense uh, to send troops in to establish some type of safe zone in Ukraine. And the most logical target, according to these statements, um, is Odessa. Uh, in order to secure a port uh, for the Kiev regime as the military conflict looks set to head south for them. Um, their counteroffensives have been ground to a halt. The uh, country's electrical infrastructure is crippled and the U.S., uh, the West has made clear they don't really have anything left to send them. This is all they've got left in the bag is to bring Western military forces indirectly. Um, I don't think they'll go in with the intention of directly attacking Russian forces, but they will occupy Ukrainian territory, which, uh, at least in the case of Odessa, what Russia will probably view as impermissible for the U.S., to occupy Odessa and have a port on the Black Sea at that point. Um, that would be uh, uh, viewed as an existential security threat even more than a Kiev regime aligned with the U.S. Uh, so uh, 
we're we're on an escalation spiral, uh, and if this dirty bomb uh, does indeed come to bear, and I think we've seen a whole lot of boxes checked that indicate that this is the direction we're going. Certainly, with calls to the UK, the France, uh, uh, the United States, and the Turkish um, uh, uh, defense ministers on this, Russia is taking this threat very seriously. And uh, obviously, the West's policy of of denial, denial, denial is policy. Uh, but of course, it would be uh, because uh, they intend to use this as a pretext, I believe. Let me ask you this, too. Uh, you know, one of the things you say, I, I see a little differently. You said with, you know, what's happening, Russia building up, et cetera, that, you know, I, that what I get from, from you is they're feeling increasingly desperate. I look at it from the other end. Europe's boiling. I think they're feeling increasingly desperate, more so than anything, certainly the Russia issue. But they can see that their coalition is falling to pieces and that the people who are cold and hungry will literally tear it to pieces in the upcoming weeks. I think the desperation they're feeling is realizing. And I think the people who are in Europe, we're, we're seeing Berlusconi, what he said. We've seen Sarkozy. We're seeing some of the older voices in Europe come out and say, hey, guys, this ain't going to work economically. This ain't going to work. We got to go in another direction. I think they're feeling that pressure really heavily. Your thoughts, Mark? But I don't think they're boiling because they don't have any gas. You're right. OK, go ahead, Mark. Unless they yeah, use they're, 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 yeah, they're, yeah, they're the looking set to freeze, uh, actually. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there is also an element of of coming economic uh, decline and socioeconomic chaos uh, this winter and and next winter even more so uh, facing the EU, which could increasingly lead to um, um, you know protests, overthrowing of governments, voting out of governments that could lead to more defections uh, from the the Western uh, coalition uh, to back the Kiev regime. You mentioned the United States being the one fanning the flames of nuclear dialogue and that Russia has not. Uh, in, in terms of most recent, and I'll just, let's say May, from May forward, when I tried to do some research on, on the nuclear conversation, I found it was Tony Blinken back in August that injected the, dis the nuclear discussion uh, in response to a question that a reporter asked him, and he said something to the effect that all options are, are on the table, even if the United States needs to use a nuclear response. It was something to that effect. And that it was after that that President Putin responded in a defensive posture by saying, basically, don't forget we've got them too. And, you know, we have a policy. We will follow our policy if we are provoked and that that has been spun into by the West into, look, Russia's talking about nuclear responses. Is is my tracking of dialogue fairly accurate? Yeah, I, th I think your timeline is exactly accurate. Okay. In September, Putin made a speech where he specifically said this is what he said, that Russia would use all systems available, mm -hmm. all means necessary to defend the Rus Russia and the Russian people. Mm -hmm. And he specifically included that um, in the context of, of a statement before and a statement after saying that specifically that he had received threats 
from high-ranking Western uh, politicians about the use of nuclear of their use of nuclear weapons against Russian forces. So he this was a clear uh, response from him. The Western media has blown. Uh, he will use whatever's necessary to defend Russia and the Russian people, which is a a boilerplate statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, like like what the U.S. makes. I would say even less threatening than the usual. All means, you know, all things uh, are on the table. Are on the ta- all options are on the table. Less, but that has somewhat been blown up by Western propaganda headlines into Putin threatens to use tactics in Ukraine. Right. I mean, that's that's the been the headlines mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for in the last uh, three to four weeks. And when it's getting that distortion and um, uh, that specific. Then there's a and, and that coordinated, I believe there's a reason behind it. And, uh, you know, they've been laying the framework for this because, again, they see the writing on the wall. They know that this last counteroffensive that has already ground to a fault by Kiev cannot be repeated. They don't have the supplies. Uh, Kiev doesn't have the trained troops. Um, and, um, you know, it's a kind of an Ardennes forest, the last ditch to force some kind of political settlement. It didn't work. Um, the counteroffensive is ground to a halt. And now with the writing on the wall, with the Russian re- uh, reservists being called up and the change uh, in uh, the strategic dimensions with the uh, infrastructure uh, destruction campaign, uh, it becomes more clear that they will have to take some action and uh, for uh, in, as far as they're concerned, better sooner than later. And add this, the Republicans now, they're starting to say the Republicans might not okay a certain amount of money. There's a lot of pressure coming from the home front, Mark. That's a great point, Garland. And so you've got the 101st Airborne in Romania saying they're not there on a peace mission. They're there in a combat posture. Then we've got the the article, lawmakers looking to pass $50 billion in new Ukraine aid before next Congress. Amid talk that it may be harder to push Ukraine aid through a Republican-controlled house if they win, lawmakers from both parties are considering passing a new massive piece of legislation before newly elected members are sworn in in January. Two minutes, Mark. Put all that together. What 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 does that signal to you? Yeah, I, I think that's mostly about domestic U.S. politics, to be perfectly clear. Okay. I mean, they're making a big deal out of McCarthy saying that Ukraine might not get a completely blank check while he has supported every spending measure so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he may add a little bit. Uh, he may seek to add a little bit of accountability. I mean, lo and behold, we've had, you know, uh, uh, reports coming from the Western press due to uh, 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 independent analysis showing that, uh, you know, some 70 percent of the weapons weren't, you know, weren't reaching the intended uh, recipients on the Ukrainian battlefield. I, I think a, a little encounter ability is is called for right mm-hmm. I, I i think so but he at no point did he ever suggest that it would be curtailed that his voting record makes clear uh that's why i think this is mostly about domestic politics and uh, the republicans trying to take back control of the congress but i see very little indication of a fundamental change in u.s uh policy towards the conflict um whatever coke or pepsi uh mm-hmm. is sitting in control of the congress uh in the united states um and biden i i think is pushing this forward uh, more out of 
an excess of caution than anything else, saying allowing himself to have this enormous pool of money. And we've seen with previous, uh, you know, 40 billions being sent, this this would uh, bring the total to 115 billion. Out of that 40 billion that was uh, promised by Biden, uh, it was only a tiny fraction of that that actually went to Ukraine. The West went to the U.S. military-industrial complex, uh, and it went to allies, uh, NATO allies in Europe, uh, to to. Um, uh, compensate them for providing old Soviet era weapons uh, to to Ukraine that were far more useful to them. Um, it's it, it became just a big slush fund to toss around uh, money to all his friends. And I think a good portion of this 50 billion is intended for the same purpose. And 30 seconds left. I, I wanted you to get into that because I think it's very important for people to never forget that for as much right now as Western media is trying to make this a battle between Republicans and Democrats. This is not party policy. This is American foreign policy. And I can't see Kevin McCarthy backing off of this if Republicans take control of the House. I can't see Joe Biden taking backing off of this if Democrats retain control. It's just not going to happen. This is American foreign policy, irregardless of party. 30 seconds, Mark Sloboda. Yeah, foreign policy doesn't change from, from substantially from from party to party, and um, uh, we saw even during Trump's administration that Trump was the first president to provide lethal arms to Ukraine, which Obama hadn't done previously, and they passed uh, uh, basically a, a sanctions package against Russia every two to three weeks. Uh, the, the deterioration in relations between Russia and the U.S. during the Trump presidency was the sharpest decline. Line, uh, that it has experienced since uh, the height of the Cold War. Got it. And let me, as we get out, Garland, where did they ever find weapons of mass destruction in uh, in Iraq? I don't think they yeah, did. Yeah, I, I, okay. I think they found them in Donbass. Oh, I think those weapons okay. Are Donbass. There yeah. they go. Yeah, that, 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 yeah they've, got, they've got to get them uh, out of uh, the, the pro-Russian separatist's hands. There she blows. Okay. Mark Shloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an unprecedented rise in respiratory viruses in children, and it's overwhelming hospitals. Their hospitals are seeing a rise in cases of respiratory syncytial uh, virus, or RSV, a common cold virus that can be associated with severe disease in young children and older adults. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a board-certified pediatrician, public health expert, and obesity medicine specialist with a telemedicine practice at AskDrYola.com, AskDrYola.com. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
So cases are rising in multiple U.S. regions with some already nearing seasonal peak levels. This is according to the latest real-time surveillance data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This while, uh, we are seeing a rise in COVID cases and also in a change in the way that the CDC is reporting. We've had no deaths reported today but there's a 458 seven-day average. No cases reported today, but there's a 35,097 seven-day average. And then today it's reported 26,284 hospitalizations with 3,123 ICU beds. I wanted to combine this uh, RSV and the COVID to for you to give us a, your thoughts on does it make sense to combine this conversation and what's going on? Absolutely, it makes sense to combine this conversation for a variety of reasons. One, because it becomes this perfect storm of RSV, influenza, and COVID all at the same time. Um, one of the big challenges that we're facing with RSV is that the season started a lot earlier than we anticipated. We usually don't see... RSV really hitting us hard until the end of November, beginning of December. We started seeing cases as early as this summer, but it's also directly linked to COVID and public health. Um, with COVID-19 and the public health uh, measures that we had put in place, particularly in terms of mask wearing, social distancing, et cetera, um, a lot of children were not necessarily exposed to RSV over the past uh, two and a half years. Most, over 90% of children by the time they're three years old have been infected by RSV, particularly those who've either been in daycare, preschool, et cetera, those who are kept at home are less likely. But the majority of children between the ages of two and three outside of the pandemic would have acquired um, RSV by now. So not only were they sort of protected from RSV, which is allowing it to wreak havoc, we also removed all of those public health measures that facilitated protection. As we speak now, my daughter is at home sick with an upper respiratory mm. infection, as are four of her classmates. And so, and she's probably one of the few uh, students in her school that still wears a mask. And there's only so much a mask can do. It is certainly not 100% effective. So when you combine the decreased amount of RSV that circulated over from 2020 to 2022, and then you take away the public health measures that protect children from respiratory illnesses like RSV, and then you combine that with the fact that a good number of hospitals and healthcare systems um, have closed down their pediatric units. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of um, pediatric hospitals, particularly in the ICU, they converted their beds to adult providing bed spaces. And then when you combine, add that with staffing shortages, drug cost inflation, low insurance and Medicaid reimbursement, along with dwindling uh, federal subsidies from the government that sustained reimbursement um, during the pandemic, all of that facilitates the numbers that we see, particularly as families are waiting over 24 hours, sometimes days for a hospital bed and even longer for an ICU bed. Is uh, RSV one of the, I mean, if a person has it, do they get any antibodies? Do they get any, any level of immunity or protection once they've had it from getting it again? Absolutely. So it's not that they won't get it again. They just won't get it as significantly. That's one of the blessings of having a little one get it 
relatively early um, because as they continue to be introduced to RSV, they'll just get milder symptoms because they have that immune response. One of the reasons why we're seeing a higher number of children showing up in emergency departments and urgent care centers is because they didn't have that um, initial infection that facilitated them having um, a less severe run of RSV now. So those who are now uh, five and six at the time that they were two and three, they were at home likely, or at least if they were in school, everyone had on a mask. And so we're not only seeing the two to three-year-olds who are freshly exposed, we're also seeing the five to six-year-olds who've not previously been exposed. So you add all of those numbers together. Thankfully, the next round of RSV that they're exposed to um, will decrease the severity of symptoms. The population that we really have to be careful of is uh, little ones who are premature. There is a vaccine for RSV, um, but it's limited to uh, children who are who are classified as high risk. So either children who were born premature, children who have cardiac health conditions, uh, significant lung conditions, those are the ones who are able to get the RSV vaccine. And one of the reasons why is that it's insanely expensive and a lot of logistics go into making sure that they are able to get the vaccine. I think you've just explained something that was confusing me listening to stories uh, this over the weekend about because of kids not being in school and because of kids wearing masks, there were lower rates of RSV last year, which is resulting in higher rates of RSV and more significant sickness of RSV this year. And so you've just, that didn't make sense to me when I heard it. But now, of course, you always do. You make it clear and explain it. Uh, Half of Virginia school out with flu-like symptoms. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, from yesterday, half of the student body of a Virginia high school uh, is out. Um, they had homecoming. They had football games. Mm-hmm. Stafford County Public Schools are saying that a thousand of their school of Stafford High School's 2,100 students were absent from class. Two questions: Are we seeing this similar issue across the country? And is the Biden administration now making the same mistake the Trump administration made when COVID first hit the scene, downplaying this, not ringing the alarm bell, and because now we're getting close to the midterms, not championing mask wearing again? Right. No, I, we have not yet seen it, but we soon will. As you likely know, um, Howard just recently, a lot of the HBCUs um, actually, but specifically Howard, because it's in my backyard, recently had their homecoming this past weekend. And all I could see on social media were thousands upon thousands of people in closed spaces. All I could think about was all of the flu and COVID that was spreading and how in about a week or so, we're going to see numbers bump up in the adult population, which is going to be similar to what we see um, in other high school and college settings, simply because of the fact that we are sort of transitioning into this, quote unquote, post-COVID space. Certainly politics plays in when it comes to public health. No one's going to push out a mask mandate before uh, midterm elections and mm-hmm. voting happen. You'll likely see it towards the middle of November. We're seeing now this XBB and BQ.1.1 uh, subvariants out of the Omicron uh, variant that are showing up across Europe and even here in the United States, particularly in the northeastern states, which is why we're seeing stagnation in terms of our case numbers coming down and our percent positive um, rates going up. It's, it's 
amazing to me that I have not seen, and not necessarily I wouldn't expect a mask mandate or even recommendations coming out of the federal administration. What I would expect is some messaging around boosters, around getting um, flu shots. I have not seen that um, happening. My daughter, you know, just got her flu shot and her COVID booster prayerfully not too late before she was exposed to whatever cootie she now has. But we certainly, uh, particularly in the in the pediatric and adolescent populations, we have to figure out what messaging is going to work. The numbers have not moved. I do a Facebook Live every Wednesday to update on all things public health, but particularly COVID. And what I will tell you guys is that the percentage of either primary series, the first or second shot for both five and older, even for that matter, six months and above, those percentages have not changed in the past like three months. It's still 9% of children six months to four years old that have only gotten one shot. It is only 31% of children five to 11 who have received both shots. And for the adolescent population, only 58% of them have received both vaccines. When it comes to either the first or second booster, for the first booster, we have yet to reach 50%. And for the second booster, we haven't hit 35% um, in the pediatric population. I don't even know that we've reached 20% when we're still struggling for our children to get their primary series. And when you combine that with flu, what we know is COVID wreaks havoc on your immune system. We know that it takes a while for us to recover from COVID. And imagine just having recovered from COVID and then getting hit with the flu, especially when we know that children are disproportionately impacted by influenza. We've already lost five children so far to influenza since the season started in the, at the end of September. And I would imagine given the shortages in hospital spaces, beds, and ICUs, along with this combined RSV and, and COVID, that we're in for a really rough ride between now and March. We have just one minute. You said imagine getting the flu after having COVID. Is it possible for you to get the both of them at the same time? We got one minute. You absolutely can get both influenza and COVID at the same time. We have seen numerous case reports of both of those happening, and it's something that you do not want to have happen. Mm, COVID causes inflammation from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet and significantly impairs your immune system, so much so that that's why one of the reasons why we likely see long COVID happening in both the pediatric and the adult population. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We hope little Dr. Hancock gets better quickly. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports Nord Stream saboteurs plunged EU into energy poverty. The destruction of Russian gas pipelines has nullified the EU's energy security, according to Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist and analyst and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Dan Lazar. Daniel, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
So the perpetrators of the attacks on the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines have destroyed the European Union's hope for a secure and sustainable energy supply, Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak has explained on the sidelines of the Russian Energy Week forum, quote, those who had plotted and perpetrated this terrorist act have basically plunged Europe into an energy poverty, so to speak adding that the sabotage of the pipelines has all but nullified the energy security the EU has long sought to achieve. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar? Well, it's, um, yes, it's, uh, it's quite true that the sabotage of the uh, pipeline uh, has dealt a, a huge blow to, um, to, to Europe's uh, energy supplies. It's plunging it into a Really, a, a really major uh, political and economic crisis. Uh, its uh, its economy is sinking, and the well-being of its citizenry uh, is declining rapidly. I mean, I mean, Europeans are going to be shivering in the cold uh, this winter because a pipeline, a major pipeline, uh, was blown to bits. Now. <laughs> At this point, you know, this reminds me of the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, I mean, after after O.J. was acquitted, I mean, does anyone really wait? You know, waiting for the for for someone else <laughs> to be named as the uh, as the perpetrator? I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, the the it's been a it's been more than a month uh, since the you know the the, the, the countries involved uh, uh, Germany, Denmark. Uh, Sweden, etc., mm-hmm. uh, um, essentially concluded that it was an act of sabotage, and everyone is waiting for the saboteur to be named. But of course, <laughs> none of them are, are none of them want to do that because it's obvious who the saboteur is, and it ain't Russia. It's obviously the the, the United States. But to your point, but to your point, Dan. OJ is paying investigators to find out oh, no, who the really, saboteur really, is. Yeah, yeah. Really I didn't know if you saw that story. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll take that job. <laughs> you know, and so you know, so uh, so so you know, so 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 the U.S. you know uh, tore the guts out from under the the EU economy, and the EU is too cowardly to engage in a serious investigation as to who the perpetrator was. So it's astonishing. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, uh, the European Union's chief protector and ally turns out to be a, an economic saboteur who is literally plunging it in, in the darkness and cold this winter. Uh, it's, it's astonishing. Um, you know, and, and no one's going to I mean, Russia obviously didn't do it. Russia has no need to to sabotage. There's no reason to sabotage its own facility, which is still which was still commercially viable and commercially valuable. I mean, it's 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 child's play, as you know, as to figure out who did this. Uh, but everyone is afraid to speak the truth. You know, one of the things I think that is important here, we're seeing, um, and I want to get your thoughts on it, Nicolas Sarkozy, former French president, and he's coming out saying, you know, look, the, 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 the block is the EU's driven by miscalculation, exaltation, anger, superficial reactions. We've seen Berlusconi. We're seeing some of the older voices that come from a time of a bit more pragmatism say, hey, this makes no sense. How long before this 
thing falls apart on them. Um, it certainly looks like it's falling apart, and they're hiding. They're not showing the protests, but the protests are there. You can hide them all you want to. Your thoughts on what's happening now with some, particularly with some of the older voices coming out saying, ah, this ain't working. Your thoughts? Well, um, there's no doubt that the continent is exploding. I mean, mass demonstrations are breaking out uh, in Prague, uh, in in Paris, where you know where there's a there's a uh, there's great the greatest labor unrest since the 1990s. Uh, I mean, Macron's in serious trouble. Uh, Olaf Scholz is in serious trouble in uh, in Germany, and uh, and Georgia Maloney, uh, her coalition, her far right wing coalition, nearly fell apart before it even you know entered into office. Uh, she had her two main partners, uh, Berlusconi uh, and Salvini, are both skeptical of the NATO point of view. Uh, and I'm sure deep down both of them, you know, have you know, know full well what the real story is with the Nord Stream uh, pipeline. Um, but, you know, but yet every there, there are huge impediments to speaking the truth because doing so essentially will mean incurring the wrath of the United States. Uh, and, and no one is willing to do that. So everyone is tiptoeing around the obvious truth. And, and what we're seeing now is this. These European states are not members of NATO. They're prisoners of NATO. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's absolutely correct. And, and NATO essentially maneuvered the uh, the continent into a a disastrous war with uh, with Russia uh, and and no one has dared ask in any halfway honest way as to how this happened I mean blaming it all on Russia is not going to work at all it's just not going to work I mean because you know it, it's, it's it's not simply evil evil Vladimir Putin, who decided, who woke up one morning and decided to go to war, obviously there was a long train of events that preceded the invasion of, uh, of um, the Ukraine. And clearly, clearly, obviously, uh, NATO bears a significant amount of responsibility. Uh, but no one's willing to talk about it because they're afraid. Well, I know I did, and I lost a job because of it. Um, <laughs> that happens. On this line of espionage and sabotage, there's a story that the defense minister, Russian defense minister Shoigu held a flurry of calls with other military chiefs to forewarn a nuclear false flag would soon happen in Ukraine. The call took place between Shoigu and Wet Austin, as well as the uh, defense ministers of Turkey, UK, Germany, and France, I think. And now the Washington Post reports that this is all a ruse by Russia to escalate the war. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar? Well, this, these are the same press outlets that have been proclaiming on their front pages since September 26, which is when the, uh, the, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline uh, occurred. They've been you know, proclaiming and uh, in blazing headlines that obviously it was Russia's fault. Well, it's not at all obvious. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. So therefore, you'll believe that if a, a dirty bomb goes off, you know, it's got to be Russia that did it. 
I mean, all all demands for evidence, for you know, for for objectivity, uh, et cetera, you know, have gone out the window. They've been out the window for months. And so therefore everybody is giving vent to their most most lurid fantasies and expecting the public to go along as it shivers in the dark. But it's just not gonna work. I mean, people have more sense than that. They want real answers. And their and their political leaders are not giving it to them. Beyond the humanitarian aspects of this, why should Americans care that Europeans will be shivering to death? in what is projected to be a harsher winter or one of the harsher winters that we've seen in a few years, in the last few years. Why should Americans care care about this beyond the humanitarian issue? Well, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of, beyond the humanitarian issue, there, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, I mean number one, if, if, if their government is capable of doing this to the Europeans, of sabotaging their, their, their own gas supply, then it's capable of doing a lot more. It's capable of pulling the wool over the eyes of the public in many other ways as it pursues relentless war with both Russia and China as well. And as bad as this war is with Russia, believe me, one with China will be many, many times worse. So by allowing the Washington to pull the wool over the public's eyes in, the, in this manner, it simply encourages to, encourages uh, the Biden administration to go off and do more of the same, and therefore and thereby create ever more dangerous situations, for which the American people will wind up paying the price. Uh, the, the other thing, Dan, I think is, and that is. Uh, the EU is one of our biggest trade partners. So if they go down, there's, you know, there's no way that our economy doesn't crash with it. Got about uh, one minute. Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, Europe is, Europe is also a, a major ally. It's a cultural ally. Uh, many Americans maintain close family ties with with Europe. I mean, it's just sort of part of the family. Mm-hmm. And if they're if they're being treated in, in this way, it means that the American people will wind up being treated in the same way. And and by the and way, they Dan, allow that. Where are the weapons of mass destruction? Did they ever find them in, in Iran? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like they're about to show up in Ukraine. Oh, okay. I, 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 I didn't, because I, I was told that they were there and now they're not. And I, okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Israeli forces raid funeral house of slain Oday uh, Tamimi, Tamimi in, in Hebron. Israel occupation forces on Friday raided the funeral house of Oday uh, Tamimi, the official Palestinian news agency report, uh, Wafa reported. Eyewitnesses said an Israeli army 
force broke into the funeral house uh, of Hebron al-Khalil and forced the participants to leave. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an award-winning broadcaster, journalist, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. You know, as as we were, you, Garland, and I were talking offline, uh, uh, we were saying that this, first of all, is a, a demonstration by the Zionist forces of Israel that, that, that nothing that the Palestinians deem to be sacred is sacred, and uh, that also in a patriarchal society that this is a, an attempt to emasculate the men and to demonstrate that we as a colonizing force can come in, we can defile you in living, and we can defile you in death, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it is a psychological warfare at the at its most blatant kind. And uh, remember that the Zionist, at the core of their project, what they are trying to achieve is to impose their perverted interpretation of Judaism as the word of God, but not only on themselves, but they are expecting that the Palestinians, the Arabs, the Muslims at large, the Christian Arabs, all of them, to admit openly that their own interpretations of their patrimonial uh, heritage, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, are invalid. Anything less than that, they will attack. So ultimately, this is a uh, a battle of existence, not only uh, physically, on the ground of Palestine and in the Arabic world. This is a battle for a, for existence of our the idea of what is a Palestinian, what is an Arab, what is a Muslim, what a Christian, what is a Jew. And the Jewish white supremacist colonists uh, are trying to set that, they're trying to fabricate reality on the ground and fabricate history. Let me ask you this. Um, I understand there was a assassination um, here recently that was something that hadn't happened in quite a while in the West Bank. If you could tell us, you know, what about that? What happened? Who was assassinated? And and what that means? So this is uh, the first assassination by the Zionist colony in the West Bank since the Second Intifada in the early 2000s, so two, 20 years now that this hasn't happened. There's been killings and so forth of uh, on a daily basis of Palestinians and Palestinian fighters. But this is a, uh, they sent a uh, agent who planted a bomb on a uh, motorcycle that is in the path of uh, uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Lions Den. This is a new group, uh, just like in Janine, but this is in Nablus. Uh, and uh, the man whose name is Tamar Kilani. He was 32 years old, uh, father of children. 
about he was one of the leaders of this new group that has uh, drove the Zionists crazy. And they blew up the, the, the motorcycle as he passed it. And uh, so now Nablus, uh, by the way, has been under siege by Israeli forces for close to a week now. And that tells you the Zionists are not able to enter the city. They have been uh, confronted every day, every time they attempted to enter the city of Nablus and or to reach the tomb of uh, Prophet Joseph with uh, Jewish white supremacists uh, to perform some religious uh, uh, cult uh, actions. And so uh, what what the whole is uh, Zionist media about the assassination of uh, Al-Kilani and also the attack on the funeral of Uday uh, Tamimi that we just spoke about, is it's uh, clearly showing that neither the Palestinian Authority uh, collaborationist security force or the Israeli Mossad and the special forces of the Zionists are able to uh, now govern much of the West Bank uh, and this it's truly liberated zones that are under huge siege for the, but uh, a new resistance has uh, shown its face. You mentioned earlier in this conversation, you were talking about the, the various uh, ethnicities and the various religious elements that are under attack and you mentioned uh, Judaism itself. And I, I think it's important just for a moment for people to understand that Zionism is not only attacking Muslims, it's not only attacking Arabs, it's not only attacking Palestinian Christians, but even within Judaism itself, particularly Orthodox Jews, find themselves under being repressed by Zionists in the name of the colony of Israel and in the name of Judaism. Oh, yeah. Both inside uh, Palestine, uh, there's a huge contingent of ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionists that uh, believe in the true uh, word of uh, the Torah uh, and uh, see that the creation of Israel is a, uh, in the name of the Jewish people in such conditions of oppressing Palestinians and basically enslaving them and uh, stealing their lands is a uh, violation of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> this is as simple as it is. And those people, and including many of these ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish communities in Canada and the United States and Europe, uh, they are actually the true uh, you know, inheritors of uh, the teachings of uh, Prophet Moses, the liberator of uh, slaves of Egypt. And uh, this is what people need to understand. Of course, the Zionists, just like before them, the Crusaders, uh, want to usurp these beautiful unitary religions, the patrimonial heritage of the Arab people and their ancestors, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and turn them into tools of colonialism, as we saw used in the Crusades and the colonization of the Americas and now with uh, Palestine. And just quickly so people know, even the creation of a Jewish state, the creation of the state of of the colony of Israel in its current context is in direct violation of the Torah. Yes, yes. I mean, of course, look, 
we're saying this to people that may be religious. Uh, ultimately, even if you're not religious, the creation of a Jewish theocracy uh, in the land of Palestine, uh, on the ruins of the Palestinian homes, is a violation of uh, every human standard, let alone the uh, standards of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and or international law. There's another interesting article, Iran to file lawsuit against U.S. for direct role in unrest. Iran's intelligence ministry said the United States is directly involved in the recent riots across the country. I read an article this morning. Uh, Elon Musk is going to provide Starlink or something to Iran. It is clear and obvious that this Iran thing is another uh, uh, attempted uh, color revolution. As the U.S. says, we're working for democracies. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, the Iranian people haven't forgotten 1956 when uh, the CIA and the MI5, MI6 uh, did a coup against the democratically elected prime minister of Iran uh, at the time and appointed the Shah to stop him from nationalizing the oil. And this is a story that hasn't ended uh, since the Iran exited uh, from being a vassal of the United States uh, with the Islamic Revolution in 1979, there's been wave after wave of uh, colored revolutions that uh, and attempts by the CIA and the British and the Israelis to foment um, unrest in the country. Uh, in fact, um, just just a few hours ago, the Iranian um, security forces uh, announced that they had um, broken up a Mossad uh, cell of uh, 10 people in the northwest of the country in western Azerbaijan province that these individuals had uh, organized to attack the homes of uh, police officers in the northwest of the country, uh, that uh, they were sending pictures of uh, homes uh, of uh, police officers and their uh, stations to the Mossad agents um, and were receiving funding for it. So we know things are clear. So it doesn't mean, of course, that there is no problems in Iran. It just says that to us that all this funding and military weapons that have entered the country, the multiple attacks and killings and lynchings of uh, security forces in the streets of uh, Iran have been a clear uh, organized event by Western uh, intelligence agencies. There is also an interesting story uh, Yemen ceasefire in jeopardy after oil port attack. They always say the on-again, off-again ceasefire in Yemen is in jeopardy, but it seems like there really are some questions uh, about it now after a, a drone attributed to Houthis uh, attacks on a southern oil port. What's happening here in, in Yemen, and is this something that at this point in the process should be of concern? Yeah, I mean, the, the supposed ceasefire that was signed between uh, Yemen and uh, the Saudi coalition. Uh, the minute that was signed uh, two months ago before it was renewed, again, uh, the Yemenis asked for all the proceeds of uh, the oil and gas sale coming from areas that are under control of the Saudi and Emirati occupation in the east of the country. 
uh, and to pay for the salaries of the civil servants across uh, Yemen. And multiple uh, you know, requests have been just ignored by the Saudis. And finally, uh, the Ansarullah, the government in uh, Sana'a, uh, warned for a week before they did this attack, warned uh, all the companies that are working uh, to loot the uh, resources of Yemen, that if the ships arrive and attempt to take uh, this oil and gas without uh, paying directly to the Sana'a government, that they will attack the, uh, sh- the shipments. And that's what happened uh, after uh, m- multiple contacts with uh, this ship that was going to carry two million barrels of uh, oil out of uh, Yemen, uh, the the uh, the Houthis attacked, or Ansarullah, more properly, uh, they attacked the uh, port and uh, you know hit around the ship, which then the ship withdrew from the area. So Yemen must be able to get a control of its oil and gas and feed its people and keep them warm. This gas and oil that was going to be being looted was going to go to keep the European citizens warm at the expense of uh, Yemeni citizens who are starving. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Elon Musk's ventures at risk of government probe. This is according to Bloomberg. The billionaire has reportedly angered U.S. officials with his remarks about Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. It's good to be here. Thank you. So Elon Musk may face a federal investigation in the U.S. after making officials uncomfortable with his remarks about Ukraine. This is according to Bloomberg. They're citing anonymous sources in the government. Musk has recently made U.S. officials uncomfortable with his complaints about not being compensated for the services that his firm SpaceX rendered to the Ukrainian government. The company provides Starlink satellite broadband access to Ukrainian government government departments and military to ensure stable communications on the battlefield. Steve Poikinen, um, we're supposed to be fighting for democracy in Ukraine and Elon Musk is having problems because of statements that he's making. We're supposed to be about capitalism and the market is supposed to control uh, what happens if you follow Adam Smith in the invisible hand and 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 somehow Elon Musk is complaining that he's not getting paid, and that's a problem. Help me out, Steve. I'm confused. Well, I, it it seems like uh, not even not even money can protect you from the U.S. government should you run afoul of what the prevailing narrative is versus uh, what the 
the third or second billionaire, certainly the third incredibly wealthy person that the United States government has decided, uh, we don't like the way that you've been speaking lately, so we're going to figure out a way to either punish you financially or take away your ability to, to have these kinds of conversations. Alex Jones, Kanye West, now Elon Musk, and I think all of them have even talked about being in a room together or talking about a, a solution. Um, Elon had the, the temerity to suggest that perhaps a nuclear holocaust was not the best way out of the situation <laughs> in Ukraine. And therefore, he must, you know, was maligned as a Putin puppet in the press. I, even in one of the articles that we were looking at earlier, uh, the article itself says that he was echoing Putin's sentiments about an end to the, the conflict here, the situation here. Um, it's, it ought to make everyone who's engaged in any sort of business deal incredibly nervous. It ought to make anyone who's been a political donor nervous. This is the U.S. government blatantly saying, if we don't like what you say, we're going to find something to investigate you on. You know, it's interesting. Bloomberg cites anonymous government officials. We, You know, they're, I, I, first of all, I, I, they seem to be in the news more than anybody else, but they're weighing what tools, if any, are available to target the billionaire. You know what two, two, two words come to mind? Julian Assange. You know, Julian Assange, because what they're saying is lawfare. We are not going to stay within the confines of the law, because I remember a case I dealt with in the past where it was the police were stopping people for pulling, you know, their like would their their tire would hit the white line and then would come back and they were saying, yeah, well, you can you can stop people technically for that. But the argument in court that one was yes, but not only if you if you only apply it to black black and brown folks, that's still illegal. Even though let's say they were to search and find out that he did something illegal, but the fact that they specifically targeted him makes it constitutionally illegal and it sounds like what they're doing to Julian Assange. Your thoughts? It's 100% analogous and it's the continuation of a policy that the United States regardless of what uh, political party has the president in office is perfectly willing to carry out. Oh, you've done something we don't like? We're going to now set a new legal precedent. Who cares if on the surface it appears to be illegal? Who cares if there's no uh, no standing in it in the Constitution or in international law? We have determined that a new precedent needs to be set. So we're going to destroy this human being because they're uh, potentially impeding our goals. It, it, again, it should have... Uh, um, anyone who's even bothering to, to pay the slightest bit of attention up in arms. Elon Musk blasts hypocritical Washington Post. The newspaper published a series of scathing articles on the Tesla chief, including one labeling him a security risk. He called the staff of the Post such hypocrites after the newspaper, which proclaims that democracy dies in darkness, ran a series of highly critical articles on him. One of the things I find interesting is when I think about who owns the Washington Post and the owner of the Washington Post also has a series made a lot of his money off of government contracts with cloud uh, hosting for the Department of Defense. 
I, I don't know if these are concentric circles or these are uh, 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 coincidences. Uh, again, Steve Poikinen, I need you to help me out. Well, I, they have competing space programs. They uh, oh, are. I forgot about and, that. And it's not even that. Um, oh, and uh, uh, Amazon has plans for a Neuralink type device. On top of that, it was just announced uh, very, very recently that Bill Gates and Microsoft are trying to partner with uh, a um, Jeff Bezos-owned or at least um, partially-owned company to provide an alternative to Starlink. Um, so this is this is one of those incredible dov- dovetails of the public-private partnership meeting where there's a politically advantageous reason for the Washington Post to go after Elon Musk and an economically, financially advantageous advantageous reason for its owner to see Elon Musk's name smeared in print. It, it's, it's, like, it's like we've decided to make a brand new reality TV series called Conflict of Interest, and instead of it being a TV show, it's just how government works. The Biden administration is reportedly considering a national security review of Elon Musk's imminent acquisition of Twitter. Twitter. A national security review of Twitter. You know, one could infer from that, Steve, that Twitter is a tool of the national security state. Would I be out on a limb thinking that it seems odd that Twitter is a national security tool? Well, we've got uh, we've got TikTok videos springing up all over the place. Former U.S. military officials saying, "Hey, be afraid of TikTok because it's a military application." A decade ago, we had Julian Assange who came out and said, "Hey, Facebook is a military application." The, there's a there's no difference really, other in than in terms of which government is operating either social media platform. Uh, <clears throat> It would be out of the scope of reality <laughs> to assume that Twitter was somehow uh, a unicorn in the middle of all of this. But it's very interesting that once a little bit of pressure is applied in the opposite direction of the whims of the national security apparatus, that they then come barging in to take up all of the media space to say, hey, 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 wait, wait. Um, all those things you accused us of doing to and with social media, not only is that all true, but it is our apparatus um, and, and try to take it from. White House officials were said to have been disturbed by a series of recent tweets by Elon Musk who favored a compromise peace deal that would see Ukraine secede Crimea to Russia, a position endorsed by the Kremlin. Musk in recent weeks has denied a claim that he told the geopolitical analyst that he personally met with President Putin to discuss a way out of the impasse in Eastern Europe. Why would those conversations result in Joe Biden deciding, or at least Joe Biden articulating the decision, possibly made by others, that Elon Musk is a risk? What's wrong with peace, Steve Poikinen? <laughs> but before before I answer that, I do think it's important to note that that on top of it being the uh, apparent purview of both Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin in 2022, that uh, Crimea 
is a Russian territory, is in fact Russian. It was the opinion of the Crimean in 2014 themselves when it was put through a referendum and they chose to join the Russian Federation. So even if both Vladimir Putin and Elon Musk are aligned on this issue, all they're doing is echoing the sentiments of what the people who live there have been saying for about the last decade. Uh, in terms of why it's a national security risk, and or in terms of why the Biden administration would view it that way or would view Musk's position as, you know, a threat because they would like to have uh, complete control over the area. It's why the 101st Airborne is doing exercises uh, on the you know, Romanian-Ukrainian border. It's why we've got 100,000 people stationed there right now. It's why the Russian troops are practicing uh, doing exercises after being exposed, exposed to contaminant radiation. Um, this is the the end goal is U.S. hot war military action in Ukraine to perpetuate uh, our never ending military industrial complex. Anybody standing in the way of that is going to be deemed a national security threat. You know, what's interesting is I, I still remember Elon Musk tweeting after people, you know, complained about the uh, the coup in Bolivia. We'll coup who we want. He was part of the team until he wasn't. It just goes to show that they will go. Anybody's fine to go along with them until such time as you veer away in any way, shape or form towards peace. And I and I, let me add this in this particular circumstance. Here's what I think. They understand that Europe is falling apart and that the Europeans aren't going to be able to hold on very long. They understand that the, Amer the Americans are veering away. The Republican Party's feeling the heat from the MAGA people, etc. They understand that this this Ukraine thing is crumbling. And I think it's kind of dangerous right now because when it's crumbling is when they could be afraid to do something stupid. Your thoughts, Steve? Well, well wait a minute. Not only is Elon Musk no longer in when he was in. But if they blow up your pipeline and they freeze you to death as an ally, then whether you're Europe, whether you're France, I mean, whether you're Germany, whether you're France, with uh, Italy, uh, all allies. Well, what did what did what did Kissinger say? It what is it is bad to be an it's American fatal. enemy. It's fatal. It's fatal to be an American ally. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Steve. Well, it is, again, this is Elon Musk. This is somebody who holds multiple contracts with the Defense Department. This is somebody who is providing, what, $20 million a month of free spyware services to the Ukrainian people. They're trying to get them involved in Iran. Um, this is a public flogging of beating people into subservience so that they can perpetuate the NATO war machine the American war machine. Um, and I, the, the power balance has just changed a little bit too much. The money spread around internationally a little bit too much. And, and while it's a dangerous tactic to do because kind of the badger is sort of cornered, I, I think there's almost too many entities now that can pose a legitimate threat to U.S. hegemony that uh, they're going to be forced to negotiate from a place of even further weakness than they would have been had they entered into an agreement six months ago. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. You guys have a great day. You too. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Rail companies reject unions' demand for paid sick leave. Is this rail deal derailing? A statement from the United States major freight rail companies left railroad workers feeling increasingly disenfranchised and undervalued, according to one labor organizer, as the National Carriers Conference Committee rejected a proposal from the third largest rail workers union, which called for just seven days of paid sick leave per year. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. The union had demanded the addition of paid sick days modeled on a system used for federal workers in which employees accrue one hour of paid sick time for every 30 hours worked. Last week, as its members voted against a proposed contract that was developed with the help of the White House, that contract included unpaid days off for medical care, but no paid sick days. Dr. Tahid, this isn't going well. No, no, not 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 going very uh, well at all. And it's actually not not unexpected that it would go in this direction. Uh, we've spoken about this um, uh, when President Biden came out with an announcement that he had brokered the deal uh, with the with the carriers and um, uh, again, again with with the union leaders uh, on a on a contract, a contract that at the time had one day of sick leave. Uh, which was uh, touted as an improvement, so we were going from zero to one day of sick leave. <laughs> that what the what the what the unions are asking for uh, on the federal system would be would amount to about about seven days of sick leave uh, for twenty two thousand hours of work for you know full time uh, one year of work, uh, which is not unreasonable, and uh, which is what what um, most persons who have sick leave would ask for. Uh, the fact that the unions are asking for sick leave to 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 cover no sick leave is is fairly astounding, and it's also, I guess, astounding that the Biden administration would have thought that this would have uh, been been uh, rectified by union members. A spokesperson for the uh, Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division, BMWED, has said, and certainly sounds reasonable, having reported more than $10 billion in stock buybacks and dividends in the first six months of 2020, rail companies can very easily afford to provide workers with paid leave when they are sick. And and I, and I say that to say this. We are seeing uh, instances now over and over of um, corporations making greater profits now than ever in history, but refusing to share it with their employees. Dr. Tahid. Yes, uh, shipping companies, uh, that's uh, uh, not only ocean carriers, but rail carriers, the companies themselves are making increased profits now because they're able to to charge, let's say, luxury good transport at a higher rate than they uh, were able to, to before because there's uh, been a a, um, um, a, a, sh- a slowdown in their capacity to move to goods. And so if you are a, a luxury goods buyer, uh, you want your goods shipped on by rail, uh, and, that, and you want that to get ahead of a, a, a shipment of rice, you have to pay a premium. And so these transport companies, including rail, have had uh, enormous increases in profitabilities. 
what companies, not only shipping uh, companies are doing, but companies that are having increased profitability uh, during this time of inflation, uh, what they are doing and have been doing for a while is buying back stock. And what that does is increase the demand for their stock and raising the price of the stock, even though the company is not producing any more value, they're not more productive. And so the, the, the rail companies are doing the same thing. They're buying back their stock, increasing the value of their stock. That benefits executives who uh, have uh, stock options in their portfolios. The stock value goes up, so their, their wealth goes up. Uh, they could cer- certainly uh, afford to increase, um, to give sick leave uh, to their employees. But, but like most companies that are doing these stock buybacks, it's going to executives, not to, not to, to workers. The rail carriers said that while workers lack standard paid sick leave, comprehensive paid sick benefits kick in for long-term illness after four days of absence. But I think but what's missing here, if, if I remember correctly what I read, that uh, employees, they accrue demerits or some they're on like some type of demerit system and after a certain number of demerits they can lose their job so so this is this is bad business on a number of levels and it's also said that the 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 workers have agreed not to strike but a work stoppage could begin as early as November 19th so taking a fragile economy and shutting off rail service uh, to a good part of the country could be catastrophic in the long run. Well, uh, that, uh, that, of course, yes, the, the economy is, is uh, suffering from inflation. Yes, certainly a downturn in, in shipping uh, as a result of the strike will, inc- will uh, increase the supply chain problems and increase inflation. Now, this is certainly coming at a bad time for the Biden administration uh, because the Biden administration wanted that deal to go through to give them some some uh, some momentum for the November primaries, that, that the fact that this is threatening to have a strike is not is not good. It's a, a serious miscalculation of of railroad workers in terms of their willingness to accept this deal. Uh, Congress could step in and and order that there be no strike. But but uh, that would also mean that the Democrats would would lead that process, and uh, would uh, would alienate uh, many of these rail work workers and, and their families. So so this is not good timing for the November primaries. Popularresistance.org reports one in three Americans are struggling. What if we united? Nearly 52 million adults, about one in four, are having difficulty paying for usual household expenses, according to most recent census data. And according to Monmouth polling, more than four in 10 Americans say they are struggling to remain where they are financially. And Dr. Tawheed, it looks like we're going in the wrong direction, like things are not going to be getting better for them or anyone else in the immediate future. Your thoughts? Well, we've been we've been going in the wrong direction at least since the uh, the 1970s. We've seen wages, real wages, buying power of wages, uh, flat since the 1970s. Even though corporate profit uh, has gone up because worker productivity has gone up, workers have not uh, gotten the benefit of that of that productivity. 
And so uh, real wages have been going down, which means that uh, now you're in an, a, 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 not a hyper, but in an inflation situation, which is exacerbating the fact that real wages are, are going down. People are able to buy less. Uh, rent and food and energy costs are going through the roof. And so the life of more and more persons is becoming more and more precarious. Um, and, and so this is, this is not a new phenomenon. This is a, an acceleration of a phenomenon that, that's been with us for about 50 years. Uh, we, we talked about the, the railroad union uh, story, uh, but, but there is also a union connection to this in that uh, unions have been declining in, in uh, membership since about the 1950s. And so that lack of bargaining power is, of course, not only affecting union members, but also affecting others, uh, other workers in general. You know, when I read this story, and particularly the line, uh, yet one out of every three of us are being taken advantage of by the system, imagine just for a second, if we all united, imagine if the entirety of that 33% of American adults, along with anybody else who agrees, all put our differences aside and fought back. That made me reflect upon the end of enslavement in this country. And you had newly newly freed African-Americans. And there was a concerted effort by the industrialists in this country to be sure that poor whites and newly uh, freed, formerly enslaved Africans did not join together. They introduced the artificial construct of race into the situation to be sure that those economic forces uh, did not combine. And I, and I wonder, and I put that in quotes, if we find ourselves falling victim to some of the same tactics today. Well, that, yeah, the tactics, uh, as you've mentioned, have been, have been ongoing. I mean, the, the, the uh, division of the working class by issues uh, such as race and gender and, and other kinds of, 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 of uh, identities, uh, you know, uh, is, is uh, I, uh, from some points of view, a, a tactic deliberately used by corporations to maintain a, uh, to prevent a solidarity among working people. Uh, in 2016, Ralph Nader had a book that I think uh, 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 listeners would be interested in. It was called Unstoppable. He was talking about the, the inevitability and the unstoppability of a, of a, a uniting across uh, a race and class and gender based on issues. That is, uh, rather than looking at, at uh, political parties as the place we need to define our, our um, uh, salvation, if you will, we need to look at the commonality that we have among issues. And so that one in three persons who are in precarious situations, they, they are Republicans, Democrats, independents, they are black and white, they are all over the spectrum. What they are is not, not rich. And so, you know, there is certainly a hope, I guess, that uh, we can get past these, uh, these differences and, and unite over these issues. Now, you know, you know of course, the, the, the mass media, the corporate media is the corporate media, and it keeps fanning these flames to incite divisions. But, but uh, this article is uh, asking the question, you know, what if we can get past those differences? I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a um, um, heavy lift to do so, uh, 
but uh, but I think it's the it's the only way we're going to be able to change the situation so that uh, uh, those who are in precarious positions are not are no longer in, in those situations. Uh, one more article. If we get a, a quick comment on U.S. is involved in more than thirty armed conflicts around the world. That's a study according to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We got about a minute and a half. Yeah, if, if, I think it's, it's very obvious. You know, Pre- uh, President uh, Roosevelt, I mean, excuse me, President uh, Eisenhower uh, warned us of the industrial, the uh, uh, military-industrial complex uh, as he was leaving office. I think it was 1954. So this, this, uh, you know, Congress is increasing the military budget every year, uh, with uh, much of that going into into these 30 or so conflicts. Uh, is is uh, showing the power of the military-industrial complex uh, that has a, a stranglehold on this government, and uh, on, on, you know they, they are very powerful. And uh, we, if we don't hold our representatives responsible to uh, to standing up to that uh, the military-industrial complex, then these wars will not only continue; the, the, these wars will increase. And so we've been warned about this. That's 70, almost 70 years ago. And so these conflicts and issues are not new conflicts. They are longstanding in this country. Dr. Linwood Tawheed, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Yes, much appreciate Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Armed poll watchers in Arizona heighten alarm over right-wing voter intimidation. Video footage released last Friday night showing armed individuals sitting near a ballot drop box in Mesa, Arizona, is heightening alarm over right-wing intimidation efforts as early voting kicks off across the United States. How concerned should we be about this, not merely in the context of Mesa, Arizona, but in the broader context of voter intimidation across the country? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an attorney and voting rights activist, attorney Daryl Jones. As always, Daryl, welcome back. Uh, Welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Leon. It's great to be back with you guys. And let me tell you, you know, voting season is here Voter suppression is underway, and all of the excitement with regards to voter intimidation and trying to, uh, you know, make efforts to make voters uh, work to be able to cast their ballots. It's in full force right now as we, you know, start early voting across the country. It's, it's just incredible. So the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office told an ABC affiliate that it is investigating several individuals who were watching a Mesa voting location on Friday. The department confirmed that two individuals at the site were armed. A clip posted to social media by an ABC reporter shows two masked people dressed in tactical gear observing the ballot drop box. Again, uh, this is Mesa, Arizona. That's one thing. But there are all different types of tactics that are being employed. And what I find very interesting 
uh, is, and, and I think, Daryl, you'll support me when the data shows it's Republicans that are engaged in too much of this activity. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely on point. Yeah, look, what we knew coming into this election cycle was that there were uh, Republicans, conservatives that were uh, training, had been training thousands, tens of thousands of volunteers on how to get into the polling places and get in a way. You know, they were to be instigators, in, in, in other words. They wanted to send people out to intimidate voters while they were waiting to cast their votes. So now what you see happening in, in Mesa uh, with regards to the video footage that's been released where you have armed people that are sitting near a drop box uh, trying to intimidate people to not come to the drop box to put in their uh, absentee ballots, their vote-by-mail ballots. I mean, that's what, the, that's what their purpose was, was to intimidate them. And you got to remember, when you're talking Mesa, uh, you're talking about you know, one of the largest cities and, and, and the most uh, uh, diverse area in Arizona. So their intention was clear, was to suppress the voters in Mesa, Arizona, suppress those black and brown voters that would be utilizing that drop box. That's what the intention of, of, of these folks was with regards to, uh, to being armed and trying to you know, say, you don't want to come there. You don't want any of this. Don't use your uh, drop box. We know that in Arizona, in the separate incident, that uh, we had uh, couples that were going to uh, put their, uh, their ballots in the drop box, and they had groups of people that were coming up to take photos of their license, photos of them putting uh, their, their, their ballots in, trying again to intimidate them from utilizing their Dropbox and exercising their right to vote. Matter of fact, in one of the instances, the the group that uh, accosted the the couple that went to cast the ballot was calling them a mule, saying that they were you know stuffing ballots uh, into the into the uh, into the ballot box. So you know it's it's all of this conspiracy theory, this uh, thought that somehow folks are trying to uh, uh, be deniers and 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 throw elections and all this other junk that's going on. You, you, you have people even that are in camouflage that are going out taking pictures of people and their license plates as they're voting at drop boxes. This is just horrible. You know, we've never seen anything like this uh, in our election cycles. But I tell you, you know, they did give the forewarning because we knew we knew months in advance that they were training people to do this all across the country. And that's what we see happening now is that is that very system going in place. And we haven't even touched on North Carolina or Georgia. And, and before we do, let me just say so that people can understand Arizona. Arizona, the demographic, and I've been talking about this for years, the demographics of Arizona has been shifting over the last probably 15 years. And it's been shifting from red to purple it, it, the state that was the home of Barry Goldwater, one of the most conservatives you'd find in the country, to John McCain, due to an influx of uh, of Hispanics and, and Latinos. A lot of Californians. And Californians, Californians retiring moving. to Arizona. And cost of housing, too. Ex I know somebody personally who exactly. moved from California due to cost of housing, too. The demographics— and then the politics of Arizona has been shifting, as has the politics of Texas. But Arizona has been shifting faster than the politics of Texas. This is why 
Arizona is one of the states where you're seeing this type of behavior. Your thoughts, Daryl Jones? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and be mindful, right? We're talking about Mesa, Arizona. We're not saying the entire state mm-hmm. of Arizona. You know, they are pinpointing uh, the areas that they, they want to go to because they want to go to the areas where they have the most uh, uh, black and brown voters and young voters. Where where they are trying to exercise the franchise is where they're trying to go because that's you know that's that's usually that's part of their uh, their central focus on where to suppress because they think that these are the voters that will not be voting in a, in a manner that's consistent with their conservative philosophy. They're probably right. But, you know, it, it's that whole piece that's there as to how they really cherry-pick uh, where they go in to, uh, to mount these challenges and to uh, implore these intimidation tactics. Another Common Dreams article, Poor People's Campaign Mobilizes Low-Income Voters in North Carolina, a multiracial coalition of justice organizations and low-wage workers wrapped up its statewide voter mobilization tour in North Carolina on Saturday with rallies and marches. Your thoughts on what's happening with the Poor People's Campaign? Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, we work a lot with uh, Reverend Dr. Um, Barber, right? Down there with the poor, yeah, Barber, yeah, yeah in the Poor People's uh, Campaign. And, you know, in seeing what they're trying to get together, again, remember, they, they're also putting together five million more, right, uh, voters that they're trying to bring in that are low-income voters. And, you know, the thing about it is that it's the low-income voters that are the most affected by the policies uh, that are enacted. So, you know, the actions by the Poor People's Campaign to try to encourage more people to come out, particularly low-income people, to come out and vote, that is about as American as it gets. But here's what we also know, that we have poll workers that are there harassing the folks that are in uh, North Carolina in May uh, during the uh, primary election. There were 15 different counties throughout North Carolina that had reports of uh, poll watchers that were harassing people who were trying to vote. You know, in addition to that, you had the, uh, those same harassers that were trying to enter into restricted areas uh, where they're, you know, where uh, in the polling booth areas where they were confidential voting records. And they're trying to get access to that. But the whole thing here again goes back to that whole concept of this voter intimidation. It's the reason why, you know, in terms of poll workers, uh, our poll workers are down across the nation. It's because the poll workers generally are uh, retired people, slightly older folks, mm-hmm. who you know are just trying to help out to be certain that the democracy is moving well. They're not going to throw themselves in the way of this of this violence, of this intimidation, of this fear, and all these tactics that are uh, that are being undertaken. So, you know, North Carolina certainly uh, is, a, is a watchdog in, 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 a, in one of the areas where this harassment has occurred and where they now have a shortage of poll workers and where the voters are trying to be intimidated uh, by these poll watchers uh, that, that are coming to, to intimidate them. And it's also important to understand, as we were just talking about what's happening in Arizona and why, then we have to look at what's happening in North Carolina and why. Because you, in North Carolina, they've got 56,000 new voters, and they're new voters primarily because of the jury court ruling, the July court ruling, restoring the franchise, the right to vote, to North Carolinians with prior felony convictions. Who make up the majority of those 56,000 people? They're probably people of color. Mm -hmm. 
And so we find as democracy tries to expand, those who want to cloak themselves in America and wrap themselves up in Americana, they're the ones that are doing everything they can to see to it that the one thing that makes this democracy what it's supposed to be, one person, one vote, they're doing everything they can do to undermine democracy in this country. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And, and let me take it one step further, right? Because not only do you have that happening in North Carolina, but the other piece that's going on there is that, um, you know, uh, after, of course, all the stuff passed with regards to permitting formerly convicted felons to be able to, to vote, uh, the next step that, w- that was also going on there is a case called Moore versus Harper. Mm-hmm. And in the Moore versus Harper case, you're dealing with gerrymandering. Because right. North Carolina, the legislature, had carved up the districts in North Carolina so badly that it was almost impossible for uh, African Americans to elect uh, African, other African Americans and many other elected officials to positions. So what has happened is that uh, there's been a lawsuit that's been brought uh, accusing North Carolina of all the gerrymandering that's gone on so that they could preserve or increase their Republican hold on the state of North Carolina. But in this Moore versus Harper case, what they allege is this. They say that it is the responsibility of the state legislature exclusively to come up with the uh, the districts, the lines for how maps are to be drawn, what districts people are to be uh, uh, placed in. And because it is exclusively within the authority of the state legislature, that courts, state court, nor federal court now uh, post, the, uh, post the Supreme Court decision, can review what they do. So in essence, they're saying whatever the state legislature comes up with, with regards to how a, uh, a state map should look for voting purposes, that's it. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can challenge it. That is scary. That is simply scary to think of the power that that legislature will have without having any court review, which, by the way, is the essence of the North Carolina uh, Constitution, that it requires the review of the state court. <laughs> Not to mention the Voting Rights Act. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, this is it's just, you know, a a very challenging time right now in North Carolina. And, you know, uh, the uh, the senatorial race that you're making reference to with Sherry Beasley and Ted Budd, uh, that, you know, a a lot of that is going to be turning on a lot of these decisions and a lot of the uh, actions of what voters believe they can do. One of the things, and and I apologize if I'm running on a little bit, but one of the things that you're going to see is this interconnectedness between the state of Florida and the state of North Carolina, particularly on the issue, Dr. Leon, that you were just mentioning with uh, with regards to felony disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you know what North Carolina has done now in saying that it's okay for formerly convicted felons to be able to vote is the exact opposite of what's happening in Florida, where you have Governor DeSantis now trying uh, putting people in jail because they had the right to, to vote as a formerly convicted felon, but the legislature changed it and confused everyone, despite the fact that the state of Florida said that, you know, we're sending you registration cards and you're registered. Oh, you weren't really registered, and now we're going to send our election police out to arrest you. So mm-hmm. that causes all kinds of confusion in the state of Florida. It becomes a national story. Mm -hmm. So it creates confusion in North Carolina and across the country. So these are the things that we're seeing happen. 
Well, there's a lot more. We, we're uh, Tomorrow will be two weeks before uh, midterm elections. And so, Daryl, we will be talking to you. Uh, we'll be calling upon you between now and then. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the work that you do along with Barbara Arnwine and uh, other members of the organization. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, Dr. Leon. Tell everyone that's out there voting, go to vote.org. Go to vote.org. Check your voting status. Check where you're supposed to go and vote. And you can also check if, if you're able to vote as a formerly convicted felon. Vote.org. Thank you so much. Thanks, Daryl. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.